So we are halfway through the Ten Commandments, and you may be interested to know that this will be week number 58. This will be the 13th month, and as of last Sunday, we have accumulated over 33 and a half hours. As of right now, this will be the longest live verse-by-verse study that I've yet to record. Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 12 if you will. Honour thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Honour your father, honour your mother, like respect, love and obey. Almost similar to wedding vows. Honour your father, honour your mother. Now in the context, this is aimed at the Jews under the law. Colon, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. So it's conditional. If you are a good son or a good daughter, back in the day you would live long on the land, long in the earth, and if you weren't, you would die prematurely. Go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6 and 9 out of the Ten Commandments are what we refer to as trantestimonial. They are found in both Testaments. They are carried over. Only the Sabbath is left in the Old Testament. Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 1 if you will. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, in the context, Christian children, obey your parents in the context, Christian parents. Colon, for this is right. And yet, think of those Muslim children that get saved and have unsaved parents. And when they declare their faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in certain parts of the world, they can be put to death. That is referred to as an honour killing. Think of a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl in orthodox circles that declare their faith in Yeshua, the Messiah. They won't be killed, but they'll be frozen out. Children, Christian children, Exodus chapter 20. Jewish children, obey your parents under the law here. Christian children, under grace. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. In other words, there is a promise given on top of the commandments, like if you are a good and honest child, you will live long and happy days on the earth, and if you don't, you won't. Verse 3, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. So it's almost word for word. From Exodus chapter 20. But for the Old Testament, if you were to breach this commandment, you would be put to death. For the New Testament, if you were to breach this commandment, you'd be frozen out of the assembly. Look at verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ye fathers, do you pray with your children? Do you teach your children the Bible? I'm speaking to Christian families now. I'm not speaking to families with unsaved children. I'm not speaking to families with unsaved parents. I'm speaking to saved fathers. And here, found in verse 4, do you pray with your children? Do you teach them the Bible? Do you pray with your children every day? I mean, without fail. That's what Paul wants you to do. And this is a commandment as well. And yes, under grace. Fathers, provoke. Not your children to wrath. Don't wind them up. Don't antagonize them. 
Don't tease them. Don't pull them down. Don't take away their confidence from them. But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So the Old Testament made it very clear that Jewish parents were to be good parents, obviously, but so too were their children. Fast forward to the New Testament. Christian parents are to be good parents, but so too were their children. And some years ago, I remember reading an interview or testimony, hearing it, it maybe an audio recording of a testimony that a well-known Christian leader gave. And he said this, he said, when he got saved, one of the first things he did was go back to his parents' home. He was a married man at the time, had a couple of children. Got on his knees and said to his parents, please forgive me. I've been a wicked child. And he certainly had been. He was a reprobate, a real uh, wily child, out all night, drinking, smoking, and who knows what else. Put his parents to the mill. Got on his knees and said, please forgive me, father. Please forgive me, mother. I know I was a terrible child. And I thought, that's an interesting and pretty honest account to share and I read the autobiography of this same preacher some years later and I thought his parents should then have got down on their knees and begged him to forgive them. His mother was an alcoholic, a chain smoker, his father was an indifferent sort of a character but the point was this, he got saved, went back to his parents home, begged for forgiveness and of course they said yes we forgive you looking somewhat shocked what's going on here? They had, I think, three children from memory, two boys and a girl. And he said, I'm now born again, and I have to seek your forgiveness. And yet I thought, wouldn't it be nice if his father had then got down on his knees? I said, son, please forgive me for the way that I raised you. Or the mother got down on her knees and said, son, please forgive me for the bad example that I set you. Go to Matthew chapter 15. He was right to do so. He obviously had a lot of guilt. And to offload that guilt, he sought out his secular parents got down in his knees and that made him feel a lot better unfortunately according to his own autobiography it didn't make any difference as far as his parents were concerned they both died unsaved his mother was an alcoholic like I say a chain smoker and one day she was drinking and smoking and she was so intoxicated that she literally fell asleep and a cigarette fell onto her lap and she burnt to death and the father was a professional military man Old school, the sort of guy that didn't show any emotion. Escapalian, from memory, good old church people, but not born again. Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter 15. Look at verse 1, if you will. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. They don't wash their hands in the sense of a ceremonial aspect, like preparing to dine, wine and dine like they say, and here the Lord, always available to his critics, very interesting isn't it, and they ask him a question, but the Lord answers a question with a question, look at verse 3, but he answered, and said unto them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God, by your tradition, for God commanded saying, honour thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death, did you see that verse 4, for God commanded, saying, Honour thy father and mother, book of Exodus, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. The Lord Jesus Christ is upholding capital punishment. And this upsets a lot of Christians, a lot of liberal Christians, apostate, ecumenical Christians, 
detest the idea of the Lord Jesus Christ being in favour of capital punishment, and yet they all turn around and say that it's okay to perform an abortion. They have no problem with that. But when it comes to the Lord upholding capital punishment, they don't like it. And I want to discuss that this morning. There's a major disconnect, I think, in the body of Christ. There's a major disconnect in Christendom. A lot of people don't read their Bibles, don't really study their Bibles. They may get John 3.16 down and they start there. They have no idea who God really is. Verse 5. But ye say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift. But whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honour not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. So quite simply this, the Jews knew they had to honour their parents, going back to the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment to be precise, and therefore to get around the Fifth Commandment, they would give money to the Lord. And by doing that, they got out of giving, uh, giving money to their parents. This is the Lord's elect nation. And here the Lord, if you will, is fighting fire with fire. He's answering a question with a question. Time after time, they would put the Lord Jesus Christ on the spot. And what would he do? He'd quote the Old Testament. Now, for memory, the Lord Jesus Christ would quote the Old Testament 60 times. 60 times. The Apostle Paul would quote it 80 times. And never once would he correct it. Never once would he say, well, it shouldn't read such and such in the Koine Greek or in the original Hebrew or the original Aramaic. It should read such and such. No, he says the scripture cannot be broken. Thy word is true from the very beginning. And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Look at verse 7. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people joyeth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This was the main problem time after time. Yes, they were geographical Jews, historical Jews, physical Jews, going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet their hearts were far from the Lord. Going through the motions, you see. Look at verse 9. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Exodus chapter 20 starts off by saying, Honour thy father and mother. That's a commandment. Paul picks us up. Ephesians chapter 6 repeats it practically word for word. For the Old Testament, you'd live long on the earth. For the New Testament, you could die prematurely. And this is one of the reasons why Solomon died prematurely he dishonored his parents of course his parents are long dead by the time he died but in a spiritual sense he would dishonor his parents go to deuteronomy chapter 21 deuteronomy chapter 21 some years ago in fact many years ago long before i was saved i remember speaking to a friend of mine at the time and she lived around the corner from me I remember saying to her, why are you so disrespectful to your parents? You only have one father, you only have one mother. And every time I saw this girl, same age as me, she would ridicule her parents, she despised her father. I guess the truth were known and thought very little of her mother. And I said to her, but you only ever have one father, one mother. You take sides with your friends, you publicly ridicule your father you call him names and she did and you make fun of your mother and she did you should be ashamed of yourself and it kind of grieved me at the time and maybe 18 months ago somebody told me that her mother had died she had been an alcoholic most of her life a roman catholic and that was pretty sad she was around 62 when she died nothing nothing 
And I was told that her father has now got Alzheimer's, doesn't know whether he's coming or going, also Roman Catholic, used to read at the Mass. And I thought, how sad. This girl, same age as me now, and both of her parents, one is dead, being her mother, and her father has lost his mind. Never thought much of her parents, and that kind of grieved me. And every time I would see her, I would try and encourage her to show more affection to her mother and also to her father, but it was too far. It was too far gone. Strange sort of a family, but I thought this, when I was told maybe 18 months ago how her mother had died a drunk, I thought, what did her church do for her? What did Roman Catholicism do for this particular woman? Went to Mass every Sunday. Husband went to Mass every Sunday. He's lost his mind. Okay, that's not to do, that's nothing to do with his religion, of course. You can lose your mind, whether you're saved or unsaved, whether you are religious or non-religious, I understand that. But an alcoholic, drinking herself to an early death, how did her religion help her? Going back to the preacher's mother, Escapalian, never got control over the drink. Her church failed her, right? And this friend of mine's church failed her mother as well. Deuteronomy 21, Deuteronomy 21, look at verse 18 if you will. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that, when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him, and bring him unto the elders of his city, and unto the gates of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. That's what the Pharisees accused the Lord Jesus Christ of being. Glutton, drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So the Lord Jesus Christ is upholding this. He's saying, yes, that's right. He's saying what the Lord said over in Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21 stands. Because, of course, he gave the law. Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus Christ is called the everlasting father in reference to Israel. Allow me to say this. Over the last 17 years, I've been a saved man, obviously, growing in grace, as we should all be growing in grace. And I've come to wonder this. For the Old Testament, we normally think of this, or we normally think of the Old Testament in relation to God the Father, don't we? We think God the Father is related to Israel, and God the Son is related to the church. I'm not going to dismiss that completely, but I just wonder if we should look at it in this way, that Jesus Christ is Israel's everlasting father, which of course he could well be from Isaiah chapter 9, and is also saviour of the church. Back in the Garden of Eden, it says how the Lord God came looking for Adam in the heat of the day, and he called out to Adam. And of course we refer to that as a Christophany, a pre-incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it could just be, don't quote me, but it could just be that the Lord Jesus Christ, from the Garden of Eden right up until the end of Malachi, is the one dealing with Israel. Son of God, and one day we will see God the Father, of course, Matthew chapter 5. But most churches believe that for the Old Testament, it's God the Father. For the New Testament, it's God the Son. God the Father has a wife, being Israel. God the Son has a wife, being the church. Just a small thought, but Jesus Christ says, yes, that's fine. If you disobey your parents, if you are rebellious, if you will not listen to your mother and father... Again, verse 18, if a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, it could be the same of a daughter, 
Elsewhere, it says, if a daughter of a high priest is found to be a harlot, burning with fire, which will not obey the voice of his father. He's in submission to his father. Daughters are in submission to their fathers. And yet my friend thought nothing of her father. Spoke about him like the guy next door. Spoke about her mother like the woman next door. Tragic. Or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, chastised him, got the whip out. Now be careful with the whip. Some of you men can be quite quick to overly discipline your children. I think it was Barry Smith who once said, if you discipline your children without any love, it's child abuse. I agree with that. If you're too quick to get the whip out, or the slipper, or the stick, if you're too quick to give your child a good whipping without any kind of love, it's child abuse. So you've got to be careful with this. And yes, for the record, I do believe in corporal punishment, but it's got to be measured. It's got to be done with love. And here, father and mother are at their wit's end. They've got a rebellious son. He's publicly embarrassing them. He's going around shooting his mouth off like that preacher before he got saved, putting his parents to the mill, drinking, smoking, doing drugs, and who knows what else. Mothers deteriorating. She's got gallstones. She's sick. She's worrying about her son. Father's drinking. And that's sort of background to this. And again, this is God's elect people. These are Jews. And that when they have chastened him, chastised him, they tried to discipline him, will not hearken unto them. Continues to kick against his parents' rule and authority. And every child should be under submission to their parents. Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him. This would be humiliating. Let's say you are the Smith family. And you're well known in Israel. Way back before the Messiah's arrival, you got a wayward son, and he won't do as he's told, and you're trying to get him back, in, uh, back into line, and it's not working. This is humiliating for you. And the Joneses say, well, our son's in good submission. You know, our son submits to us. Our daughter submits to us. We've got a very good family. And yet the Smith family are struggling. Father, mother, lay hold on him. Verse 19, bring him out. Bring him out publicly. Unto the elders of his city. The elders had a lot of authority back in the Old Testament. The priests were very involved with family relations back in the Old Testament. For today, churches are run by elders in a similar sort of way, but not quite. We have no priests today in a physical sense, only in a spiritual sense. And under the gates of his place. This is now public. I mean, it's humiliating, isn't it? Smith Sr. bringing Smith Jr. with his wife to the elders. In other words, what they're saying is, we can't deal with our son. Can you deal with him for us? This is humiliating. And yet this is what you were told to do, commanded to do under the law. 20. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Again, that's what the Pharisees would slander and accuse the Lord Jesus Christ of being. Interesting, isn't it? How they saw the Lord Jesus Christ. 21. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. Put him to death. So shalt thou put evil away from among you. And all Israel shall hear and fear. So this was commanded back in the Old Testament. Now how many times this was enforced? We don't know. At times there does appear to be a level of grace. Discretion. Back in the Old Testament. But strictly speaking. This is what was expected. And the Lord said for Matthew 15 verses 1 to 9. That it was okay. It was okay. And again, this upsets a lot of liberal people. They stumble on this and they don't like the idea of the Lord Jesus Christ upholding 
capital punishment when it came to wayward sons, wayward daughters. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. So this service is about families. And like I say, for the Old Testament, Jews were commanded, Jewish children were commanded to obey their parents. For the New Testament, Christian children were and are commanded to obey their parents. But it's so difficult to think of Muslim kids getting saved, and it does happen, or Jewish kids getting saved, and it does happen, obeying their unsaved parents. And like I say, in Islamic circles, when that gets out, those kids that declare faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are put to death. And I've spoken over the years of a couple of Hindu gentlemen in parts of India that got saved and told their parents they were now Christians. And on one occasion, this Hindu young man outside of uh, Delhi from memory was held prisoner, was locked up in the basement. And the parents said, you're not going anywhere. We want to stamp this out of you. We won't have our child to be a Christian. And they tortured him. They deprived him of food and water for several days and weeks. And eventually he broke out. And I think he went to Sweden before eventually emigrating to America. They are the worst case scenarios. But let me say this. If you are a Christian boy or a Christian girl and you've got saved parents, count your blessings. Count your blessings. If you are in a Christian family and you have daily Bible studies and daily prayers and your fathers are real men of God. I mean, like they pray in public. They fast and they publicly rebuke sin. Count your blessings. Not all kids are in that situation. Not all kids have got unsaved parents. They are still commanded to obey their parents. So let's take a slight detour. First Samuel chapter 1. But let's continue to stay on track looking at the fifth commandment. The first three commandments deal with man's relationship to God. The fourth commandment deals with man's relation to man in a sense dealing with the Sabbath. Take a break. On the seventh day, pray and fast. Remember, almighty God, allow your servants, being Gentiles, if they were slaves back in the Old Testament, to refrain from working. In other words, you shut down for at least 12 hours, if not more. And now the fifth commandment deals with children obeying their parents. 1 Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Look at verse 4, if you will. And when the time was that Elkanah offered... He gave to Peniah his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. So Elkanah is similar to Jacob. Jacob had, to start with, two wives. He loved Rachel, but got stuck with Leah. And here Elkanah loves Hannah, but has been stuck with Penina, or Penina, and this is a very interesting part of the Old Testament because, let's be quite honest, it deals with polygamy. One of the main problems in the Old Testament, and of course Jacob would eventually accumulate two more wives. Four wives, they give him, what, 12 sons and one daughter. He loved Rachel, but like I say, got stuck with Leah. And here, Elkanah, verse 4, is married to Penina, his wife. And on top of that, he gave to all of her sons and her daughters portions. And I'm going to suggest this, that her daughters and her sons are his daughters and his sons. But unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord, but the Lord, but the Lord 
had shut up her womb. She's barren, like Elizabeth for the New Testament, like Sarah for the Old Testament. Look at verse 6. And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. Twice you're told how the Lord sealed up her womb. She's barren, which for the Old Testament times was a stigma. In some ways it still is, but not quite. And there are, from memory, three or four women in the Word of God that would struggle to conceive. And here, on top of that, she's got a sister wife. A sister wife who's got children. She's got sons, plural, verse 4. Daughters, plural. That's pretty rough, isn't it? Look at verse 7. And as he did so, year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. So it's bad enough to be barren. It's bad enough to be married to the man that you love. It's bad enough having to share your husband with another woman. And on top of that, the woman in question has got children. Three, four, five, perhaps six, we don't know. And if that wasn't bad enough, she's teasing her. She's antagonizing her. Look at it again. And as he did so year by year, in reference to Elkanah, when she went up to the house of the Lord, in reference to Hannah, so she, Penina, verse 4, provoked her. What a terrible woman. Therefore she wept, being Hannah, and did not eat. She's anorexic. This is a family unit. This is God's elect nation. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? I guess he must have been a remarkable man. He's got two women. And on top of that, he really thinks that he's more important to her than ten sons. Why are you crying, Hannah? Why are you so grieved? In some ways, he's a little bit indifferent to his wife's suffering. Going back to Rachel. Rachel desperate to have children. And Leah is churning them out year after year. Leah's maidservants are churning them out year after year. Rachel gets desperate. She calls on her handmaids to assist, in a sense like Sarah and Hagar and the Abraham incident. And by the end of Jacob's life, like I say, he's got 12 sons and a daughter. And here you've got these sister wives in competition, but not quite. And on top of that, you've got one Sister wife antagonizing the other and Elkanah in the middle of these two women. Incredible. Look at verse 9. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. Eli, an Old Testament priest, had a couple of wayward sons. Maybe next week we will discuss him. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. She's grieved. She's depressed. She's worn down. I'm going to suggest she's around 35. I'm going to suggest she's been married for around 10 years. I'm going to suggest that Elkanah is maybe 50. I'm going to suggest that Penina, verse 4, is probably 35, 40. I'm going to suggest that Elkanah and Penina have got several children. I'm going to suggest that uh, Hannah has been in this polygamous relationship for a good 10 years. And here you've got this threesome. That's what it is. Let's call it what it is. This threesome. And they are religious. It's almost like a paradox, isn't it? Look at verse 10 again. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. She has a relationship with the Lord. She's a saved woman. 
Not found in Hebrews chapter 11, I'll grant you that. And neither is a husband or a sister wife. But many people that were saved back in the Old Testament are not found in Hebrews chapter 11. This is a paradox of scripture. Now for the New Testament we would say it's the old nature. And these two natures are clashing as they will do on a regular basis. But just for the record nobody in the Old Testament was born again. They were saved obviously through imputation like we are. But they weren't regenerated. But they were still saved. Sins were covered. Whereas we are forgiven. Look at verse 11. And she vowed a vow. And said O Lord of hosts. Jehovah of armies. If thou wilt indeed look on the affliction. Of thine handmaid. And remember me. And not forget thine handmaid. But wilt give unto thine handmaid. A man child. Then I will give him unto the Lord. All the days of his life. And there shall no razor come. Upon his head. Give me a son. Not a daughter. Give me a son. One day he'll become a priest. And on top of that, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. That really sets the bar high, doesn't it? Some of you women have been trying to get children, trying to conceive. Some of you women have gone down the IVF route. Some of you women have been desperate to have children and haven't been able to get children. How many of you women could do this? How many of you Christian women, and I'm speaking to saved women, not unsaved women. How many of you saved women could do what Hannah is asking the Lord to do. Or how many of you could do what Hannah is about to do? Let's say you're 35. Let's say you're 40. It's really pushed us. Let's say you're 40. And they do say, if you have a child after you're 40, there are problems, obviously. Let's suggest this, that Hannah is at that difficult stage in her life, between, say, 30 and 40. Most women have their children in their 20s. Let's say that Hannah is around 40. Now, bear with me. Let's say she's around 40. And once she passes that particular stage in her life, the odds of getting pregnant decrease even more. And on top of that, she's prepared to, if she has a child, dedicate him to the Lord. Now, could you do that? Could you do that? Hannah did. 12, and it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. He's watching her. He's very observant. Eli was a priest back in the Old Testament, had a couple of wayward sons. And next week, we'll continue this theme of the family unit men in the ministry and their children but here you've got hannah a daughter of israel desperate to have a child praying and fasting anorexic like i say making herself sick praying day and night a bit like anna from the gospel of luke not to have a child but to stay in fellowship with the lord and here eli is aware of what is going on he's very involved with this woman again this is the dichotomy almost of trying to work out why these things take place why the lord allows certain sins to take place and how we those of us which preach the gospel teach the bible how we approach this without appearing to give people a license for sin while at the same time being honest with what the scripture tells us jump down to verse 17 then eli answered and said go in peace and the god of israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked him of so you've been praying to Jehovah to conceive. And as the high priest, with the authority that he had, he was able to tell her that what she just prayed for, and of course she's, she's been praying for years, you understand. She's about to get her desire. Look at verse 18. And she said, let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. She's come alive. She's gone away with a spring in her step. 
and she is convinced that, as a result of her prayers and fasting, and perhaps Elkanah has been praying for her as well, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Penina wasn't praying for her sister-wife, as a result of husband and wife, yes, a polygamous husband and wife, yes, an adulterous couple praying and worshipping the Lord, and quite possibly saved as well, as a result of their prayers, and Eli's involvement found very clearly uh, from verse 17. She's about to conceive. 19. And they rose up in the morning early, and worshipped before the Lord, and returned, and came to the house in Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. They worship early. This is a saved couple. This is the complexity of, of the scripture. This is how careful you have to tread when it comes to understanding what sin is in the eyes of the Lord when it comes to his children and what sin is when it comes to sinners. As a son of God, as a daughter of God, when you sin, God deals with you as a son or a daughter. But if you're not saved, he deals with you as a sinner. But if you're saved, you are saved. And here, threesome, polygamy, children being produced in their numbers, they're still saved. I believe anyway. You may find some people that disagree with me and say that Hannah is in hell this morning. I don't believe so, but they may think that. And Elkanah is in hell this morning. They may say that perhaps Penina is in hell this morning. Maybe. She's a pretty vindictive woman. But I'm going to say this, that as far as I'm concerned, you've got a saved couple here. And on top of that, they're going to produce a wonderful man. But not perfect. And next week we'll discuss that. Rose early in the morning, worshipped before the Lord, verse 19, returned, came to the house in Ramah, Elkanah, knew Hannah his wife, obviously intercourse has taken place, and the Lord, and the Lord, and the Lord remembered her. First of all, verses 5 and 6, he shuts up her womb, keeps her barren for several years, makes her pray, makes her fast, causes her to suffer. I won't say that he was responsible for her sister wife, needling her, jabbing her, mocking her. That may not be as a result of the Lord's direct involvement, but maybe through a permissive uh, involvement, uh, the Lord's permissive will. But after, say, five or six, seven or eight, maybe nine or ten years, I'm guessing now, she's finally about to fall pregnant. Look at verse 20. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come, about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son, and called his name Samuel, or Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord, I have asked him of the Lord, because I have asked him of the Lord. Samuel, or Samuel, means God heard. It means God has listened. She prays for son. You're told to pray without ceasing. She prays for son. Honor thy father and mother. She prays for son. Jehovah gives her a son. But she says to Jehovah, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you. Now, could you do that, you Christian women out there which haven't got children? And you're getting up in years now. Could you give your son to the Lord? Could you do it? Knowing that you may not have any more children. Could you do it? I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying you're expected to for the New Testament. But could you do it? Could you have the faith? Would you have the faith? You say, I spent thousands of pounds on IVF. We can't have children. But if the Lord gives me a child, I will give him to the Lord. That's real faith, isn't it? That's real faith. And the man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. He goes up with his two wives. And now Samuel, although Samuel is with his mother, verse 22, this is a religious family. This isn't, or well, these aren't unsaved 
heathen. These are Jews. And this is how you've got to be careful when it comes to reading the Bible. And yet 90% of Christians will say that adultery results in everlasting hell. And I mean 90%. They don't understand the Old Testament. They couldn't explain this to you. Or they'd read these verses and say, they're all unsaved. Really? You think so? Went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice. Why bother? Why bother to do this if your hearts aren't right? And his vow, in reference to Elkanah, uh, but Hannah went not up. For she said unto her husband, I will not go up unto the child be weaned. And then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord, and there abide forever. Remarkable. You're telling me this isn't a saved woman? Does this sound like an unsaved woman who doesn't love the Lord? She's saved. He's saved, but he's an adulterer. You see, you can't understand it, can you? When you get saved, you get the Lord's imputation. This family had it. They had it. But you speak to most churches today, they will say adultery, everlasting hell. They can't explain this to you. They can't explain imputation. They can't explain the blood over the doorposts back in the earlier chapters of Exodus. If I see the blood, I will pass over. They can't explain when Balaam was called to curse Israel. And he says to the guy that hired him, whose name escapes me, to curse Israel, I can't see any sin in the camp. I can't see anybody committing sin in the camp. And of course, you know there were millions of Jews around that time committing all sorts of sins in the camp. But imputation. The blood of Christ covers all of your sins. Past, present and future. 23. And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth thee good, tarry until thou have weaned him. Only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. So the husband is now involved with this in agreement. It probably grieved him to see Hannah struggling. I'm going to suggest he loved her. In fact, it says he did from verse 5. Jacob loved Rachel and it grieved him also that for years she couldn't fall pregnant. And here Elkanah is in harmony with his wife. Always a wonderful thing when a saved couple are in harmony concerning family affairs like the raising of children. 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, and three bullocks, and one ephah of flour, and a bottle of wine, and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. She's continuing to honour her promise. Lord, give him to me. Give him to me, Lord, and I'll give him to you. And they slew a bullock, and brought the child to Eli. They being probably Hannah and her husband. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as thy soul liveth. My Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord. Eli, do you remember me? We spoke some years ago, some months ago. We spoke some time ago. And she said, O oh my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord. That's what they call people back in the Old Testament, my Lord. Doesn't Peter commend Sarah for calling Abraham my Lord? I think she did. I think he did. I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed. And the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Eli worshipped the Lord there. Probably Elkanah is present. They are presenting Samuel to the Lord. A gift to the Lord. At this point she has no idea what will come. Uh, as a result of what she has just done. As far as she is concerned, she will never see Samuel again, or at best, she may see him twice a year. But going back to 20 verse 12, Honour thy father and thy mother, why, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And that's food for thought, isn't it? 
The promise was made. She promised to the Lord, give me a son and I'll give him to you. The Lord gave her the son and she gave the son to the Lord. God gave his son to the world. And once he gave his son to the world, we honor the son by preaching the gospel, by getting people saved, by alerting people to what the Lord has done for us. And here I'm going to suggest this, that Hannah is one of the most remarkable women in the Old Testament, a type of Mary for the New Testament. And there are several women in the Old Testament that are types of Mary for the New Testament. I believe she was saved. I believe Elkanah was saved. I'm not so sure about uh, Penina, but as far as Samuel is concerned, a great blessing is going to come his way, which we will talk about next week. And Hannah, saved woman, I believe, and so too was her husband.